morning. Great to see you this, uh, this, this morning. Let me invite you to open a copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. As we continue our study through the book of Mark, uh, there's a Bible in front of you, under the chairs in front of you. If you came without one or use your phone, I just didn't want you to have a copy open in front of you. So you can follow along. There's also a uh, outline on the back of this week's bulletin to help you as well. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13 is the portion of God's Word we're going to study this morning. So uh, I'd like to read it to all of us before we begin today. Hear the Word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. God's inerrant and authoritative word. Let's pause and ask for his help as we continue studying this passage. And now, Lord God, we pray for your help today as we look into your word and see your glory revealed, Lord Jesus, to your disciples. I pray that you would reveal your glory to us this morning, that we too would be uh, knocked to the ground, as it were, like the disciples were. Uh, Jesus, uh, I pray you'd give me uh, clear thoughts and a a clear voice. Help me to declare what your truth and what your word says. Jesus, strengthen our hearts as we hear and listen. Give us attentive minds to engage with your word today. And Savior, we entrust ourselves to you in this process. And we ask in your name, amen. It was a fog-shrouded morning on July 4th, uh, 1952, when Florence Chadwick uh, waded into the water off Catalina Island, off the coast of California. She intended to be uh, the first woman to swim the distance uh, between Catalina Island and the coast of California, Los Angeles being up in this region, 21 miles. 
21 miles. 21 miles. <laughs> she intended to swim. The first woman to swim that. She was not new to long-distance swimming. She'd been the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. Swim the English Channel. Swim the English Channel. <laughs> the water was numbing cold that day. And the fog was so thick that day that that is uh, a coastline with fog. You can see the, the buoy there. I hope you can see the buoy. Uh, it was like this. She could barely see the boats alongside her that were, were traveling with her. There were sharks, and they had to be driven away with gunfire. She swam for more than 15 hours. 15 hours. Before she asked to be taken out of the water, her trainer tried to encourage her to keep swimming since they were so close to land but when Florence looked, all she saw was the fog. So she quit, less than a mile from her goal. Later she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. It wasn't the cold or the fear or exhaustion that caused her to fail. It was the fog. And as you and I attempt to follow Jesus, I believe one reason we become discouraged, one reason that we lose heart, is because we lose sight of land. We lose sight of the goal. We drop out of the race because of the fog. In Hebrews 12, Scripture compares following Jesus to a marathon, uh, to a long-distance race, not unlike swimming 21 miles. And it begins in Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And just as Florence Chadwick said, if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. So the writer of Hebrews says that you and I must also, in this marathon that we're in of following Christ, we also must see the finish line. The next verse goes on to say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just as Jesus kept his eyes on what was ahead of him, what was before him, the, the joy of accomplishing uh, redemption and being seated at the right hand of his Father, so you and I must set our eyes on the joy that's before us. I believe this is one reason why the transfiguration took place to reveal to the disciples the joy that was ahead of them, to help them see through the fog, uh, to show them what was beyond the finish line in their marathon. If you've been with us 
The last two weeks we heard Jesus call them to a life of surrender, sacrifice, and possibly even death. Up in verse 34, uh, Jesus said, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Commenting on this, Pastor Ken Hughes said, It was a radical, revolutionary revelation, totally out of sync with their messianic expectations. It was naturally confusing and depressing. And so to balance out the picture for his men, uh, to help these men persevere and finish the race, Jesus took them up the mountain for, the, for what Ken Hughes calls the most stupendous blast of encouragement mortals have ever known. And I think there are probably a good number of you here today needing that very same stupendous blast of encouragement that Peter, James, and John received. Because for you, the war has not been easy. The battle has been hard and long. You're in a fog. You can't see the shoreline anymore, and you're ready to stop swimming. You found that following Christ is hard. You feel like giving up. And you need this same kind of encouragement that Peter, James, and John received. So how did Jesus encourage his disciples? What was in this stupendous blast of encouragement? How does Jesus encourage us to keep on swimming in the fog, to keep on following him, to keep on fighting? Well, there were four ingredients in the disciples' encouragement. Four ingredients in this stupendous blast of encouragement. And the first ingredient was the glory of Jesus. Jesus briefly revealed himself as the Son of God in all his glory. I want to point out two things about the glory of Jesus. The first is, you see there, uh, the location where his glory was revealed. And it says in verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. As far as we know, uh, Mark hasn't told us anything different. Jesus is still up in this region to the far north of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, for most of the books so far, he's been in uh, this region of Galilee, crossing the Sea of Galilee a time or two. But uh, since Mark hasn't told us otherwise, uh, we assume he's still somewhere near uh, Caesarea Philippi. Uh, tradition holds that the transfiguration took place on Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is far to the south below uh, the Sea of Galilee. Um, but because there was probably a fortress on top of Mount Tabor in Jesus' day, other scholars suggests that the transfiguration took place on Mount Hermon, much closer to the region of Caesarea Philippi, just a little bit to the northeast. It's, it's the mountain in Palestine. 
It is the mountain of Israel. It can be seen uh, from Tyre. Uh, it can be seen from uh, Jerusalem, uh, I believe. Uh, the, its peaks rising over 9,000 feet above sea level. Uh, Kent Hughes says, on a clear day, its snow-clad uh, snow slopes can be seen from all parts of the land, from Jerusalem to Tyre. It's the highest point on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So their ascent up these 9,000 feet uh, up Mount Hermon would have taken a good while, and some suggest perhaps most of the day they were, they were climbing to the summit of, of Mount Hermon. So this is the location, the first thing we see about the glory of Jesus, of, of where it probably took place. But then the second thing I want to point out here is the revelation of his glory. Look at the end of verse 1. The very last phrase of verse 1 says, and he was transfigured before them. That term can refer to being transformed on the inside. Um, Romans 12.2, you remember, calls us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It can also be referred to being transformed on the outside, a change in your outward appearance, and that's what it's describing here. And, and, and look how Mark describes this change in the appearance of Jesus in verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, no one on earth or no launderer on earth could could bleach them. There was no natural explanation for this. No human explanation. The, the radiant brightness of Jesus was otherworldly. Matthew also writes about this uh, uh, event. And Matthew adds that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Later, John would Describe it like this, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Ken Hughes comments again, for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. It's probably similar to what Isaiah described in our scripture reading this morning. And Mark is correct, it's familiar. But did you know that what we read in Mark uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 actually describes the appearance of Jesus Christ? Actually describes the appearance of Jesus Christ. It's not new to many of you, I'm sure. But many of us assume that's a description of, of God the Father. But John describes it this way in the Gospel of John, quoting from Isaiah 6. Uh, uh, John says, uh, where is my quote from John? There it is. Isaiah said these things, Isaiah 6, 1 through 13, that is. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, talking about Jesus, and spoke of him. Jesus' appearance is similar to what Ezekiel described in Ezekiel 1. Listen to this. And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, 
and seated above the likeness of a, th of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him. This is also how John described Jesus in Revelation. John, who was here on the mountain, and in Revelation he writes this, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. That, friends, is how you and I will see Christ one day. When he returns or when he takes us home, we will see him in all his glory. That's the shoreline. That's why we keep swimming. This is why we persevere through suffering. This is why we keep on struggling against sin. One day we will see what these men saw and it will take your breath away. You sit there like unconvinced Americans in front of me. It'll be like an, an, uh, unlike anything you have ever seen. You will not have words. It will almost stop your heart, except you're in eternity and your heart can't be stopped anymore. It will be jaw-dropping beauty beyond description. Brightness brighter than the sun. And standing there, you will forget about what was behind. Now that's hard to believe. And probably don't believe that. What could make me forget what just happened? The glory of Christ will make you forget what just happened. It will be nothing. You won't be concerned about meeting Uncle Ted and Aunt Francine up in glory. I don't think you'll even care about Uncle Ted and Aunt Francine anymore. You will be consumed with the glory of Christ. You will be thrilled like you have never been thrilled before. Because this is what you were made for. This is what you were designed to be satisfied with. You ever wonder why so many so much junk in the world just wears off? And you grow tired of things and you got to buy something else from Amazon to give you that little buzz during the week. You weren't designed to be satisfied with that stuff. 
here. This is what you were designed to be satisfied with. The glory of Christ. And your breath will be taken away. Paul writes in Romans 8 that our sufferings here are nothing compared to what we're going to see. Listen to what he says. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Now think of how flip-flop that is right now. The sufferings of this present time are what consume us. What we worry about, and what we fret about, and what we pray about, and what we stay awake at night about. And you would hardly tell yourself, well, that's nothing. But when you stand in front of the glory of Christ, you will think and say, ha, that was nothing. You will be so thrilled and taken with the glory of Christ that every bad thing you have endured will not be able to compare with what you're seeing right in front of you. Isn't that worth looking forward to? And he says it again in 2 Corinthians. For this light, momentary affliction. Oh, flat tire? No. Uh, trying to be murdered with stones and being beaten with wooden sticks and spending a night in the open sea, the Mediterranean Sea. That momentary affliction, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And, and then Peter, who, who also was here, uh, compares Jesus' glory, uh, and he describes it the same way, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And he, Peter goes on to say, this is especially true for the elders of the church. And he says, so I exhort elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Are you tired of running? Are you tired of swimming? Have you lost sight of land because of the fog? Look up. This is the shoreline. The glory of Christ. And when we see it, nothing will compare. Charles Spurgeon uh, put it like this. I don't know exactly what he was talking about, but I'm, it can apply to this. I just like this quote. Have patience, believer. Eternity will right the wrongs of time. When you arrive and see the glory of Christ, literally nothing else will matter. Nothing. So this is the first ingredient in their encouragement. And 
I think the biggest one, what a, what a massive ingredient, is that the disciples were given a glimpse of Jesus as he is. And we will be given a glimpse of Jesus as he is. And this is why we keep swimming. Well, this brings to a second ingredient. Um, the glory of Jesus is the first, and the second is the greatness of Jesus. And isn't that the same thing? No, not quite. Jesus, uh, in his word, we'll see next, far surpasses anything that came before it. And his greatness is revealed by the presence of two people on the mount with him. And the first person is Elijah, who we see in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. In the book of Malachi, the Lord told his people that Elijah would appear before the day of the Lord came. Uh, so this is what the prophet Malachi said, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Must I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction? That prophecy was fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. Listen to how Gabriel describes John to his father. This is what will happen with your son using very similar language. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Jesus himself identified John as this Elijah and if you are willing to accept, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. And through the presence of, of uh, John the Baptist's Elijah-like ministry, uh, Israel's final redemption had begun. The kingdom of God had come near, as we've seen uh, in Mark already. So Elijah in John the Baptist, has come. The other person is Moses. Uh, there was also a prophecy uh, about Moses concerning the end time. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Through the transfiguration, Jesus revealed that he is this prophet like Moses. In fact, it's so explicit what, what Mark is doing here. He describes the transfiguration in very similar language to a trip Moses made up Mount Sinai. Look at these Similarities, they are pronounced. Uh, uh, Jesus was a prophet like Moses. So we recall that Moses also took three people plus 70 elders up the mountain, just as Jesus took three disciples up the mountain with him. 
And then we saw that Moses' skin shone when he descended from the mountain after talking to God. You recall he had to put a veil over his face so people would stop staring at him. And we're told here that Jesus also was transfigured and his face and clothes became radiantly white. And then back in Exodus, God appeared to Moses in an overshadowing cloud. And the same we'll see here, God appears to Jesus in an overshadowing cloud. In Exodus 35, the people were afraid of Moses when he descended from the mountain. And here in the book of Mark, we'll see that our people are astonished. Mark describes Jesus in such similar terms to, to reveal uh, that Jesus is this prophet that Moses had referred to. He is the end time prophet that Moses had described. And so the presence of these two figures, Elijah and Moses, reveal to Peter, James, and John that this is the era of fulfillment. The time of Israel's redemption is close. <coughs> Jesus himself said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets represented here by Moses and Elijah. Jesus' work uh, would fulfill and far supersede all that the prophets described. Jesus was greater than all of that. Uh, the age of fulfillment had come. Israel's redemption had begun. Listen, this is how the book of Hebrews says it. Uh, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Elijah, like Moses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. His son has superseded, surpassed in greatness all who came before him. And Hebrews also tells us uh, how much Jesus has surpassed Moses. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Listen to Ken Hughes again. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything toward which the law pointed. He fulfilled what the sacrificial system was teaching. He fulfilled every messianic prophecy, everything toward which Israel's religion and history had been moving. By, by no means am I saying that we no longer need the Old Testament. Please hear that clearly. By no means am I saying that we disconnect our faith from the Old Testament. Anyone who says that is a liar. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be uh, fully equipped, perfectly furnished. No, the... the Christ is present in the Old Testament, uh, foreshadowed by these many prophecies. He's come to fulfill and surpass them. So we are encouraged. We keep swimming because of the greatness of Jesus. We will one day see his glory, but we can be encouraged now by the greatness of Christ that he fulfilled the law and prophets. This leads us to a third ingredient in our encouragement, and that's the approval of Jesus. Uh, 
the third ingredient in their encouragement and ours was the, the approval of Jesus by God the Father who authenticates Christ. Uh, let's begin in verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, or teacher, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And I don't mean to be flippant here, but I find these two verses almost humorous. It's like a kid on Christmas Day. It's like a puppy dog wagging his tail when you walk in the door. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, it's so good that we're here. It's, uh, it's almost comical. Uh, you know, Peter, just say anything. Uh, and he does. Uh, he's probably just trying to make the best of a situation that is so far beyond his comprehension, um, doing the best he can. So we won't take too much, uh, we won't uh, uh, criticize him too harshly. But then a cloud descends on the mountain in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Matthew, Matthew says it's a bright cloud. Uh, much like the glory cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. You recall that. Uh, Exodus 13 describes that glory cloud this way. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The, this seems to be like this cloud if not actually the, this cloud. Uh, sometimes it's called the Shekinah glory of God. But it has not been seen in the land for over 600 years. And then a voice of authority speaks from the cloud. Words that are similar to what the Father said at Jesus' baptism. Look what it says. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The voice, uh, obviously, a much higher authority than Moses and Elijah. And the father instructs Peter, James, and John to listen to his son because his son is the ultimate and perfect expression of God. His son was the ultimate and perfect expression of God. Again, I want to point back to Hebrews 1.1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the very stamp of God, the very impression that was made in a wax seal on an envelope. He so much the exact imprint that Jesus could say this to Philip. These words are really, they're quite shocking. 
And Philip said to him, uh, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me, <coughs> excuse me, has seen the Father. And then Paul adds in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. The, the Father endorses, approves, authenticates his Son because his Son is the perfect and ultimate expression of himself. The Father delights in his Son, takes pleasure in his Son, is well pleased by his Son. And so, friend, if the Father takes pleasure in the Son like that, would he not take pleasure in you taking pleasure in his Son? The answer is absolutely. God has given us Christ to delight in, to enjoy. And now I'm speaking a foreign language to some of you there. Enjoy Christ? Dude, what is wrong with you? Take pleasure in the sun? I mean, what is that? And it sounds foreign. You can't imagine such a thing. That is what's intended. He's given us the sun to look at. Not that we can see him now. And we don't go about making images because that's what the second commandment is all about. Any image of Christ would degrade his glorious person. Any attempt at an image. But he's the image of the invisible God. God can't be seen after all. He says he's invisible. And invisible means you can't see him. <laughs> but we can see Christ. We see Christ through the pages of Scripture. And so our encouragement is to delight in the person of Christ, to hear the Father's approval, and to find our own approval in the Son, to delight and take pleasure and be well pleased. Growing up, we used to sing a hymn called, Jesus is all the world to me. Jesus is all the world to me. And this is what's intended. There's one more ingredient. And that fourth ingredient in this encouragement is the gracious and merciful reminder from Christ to his men that there will be suffering, by the way. And the fourth ingredient is the sufferings of Jesus. He reminds his men that the cross comes before the crown. Uh, we'll see this in verse 8. 
if I can get the sweat out of my eyes to read. Uh, verse 8 says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Matthew records that when the cloud came down, probably covered the entire mountaintop, and began to speak that the disciples hit the deck. And so now we get the picture that uh, Peter and James and John are just now lifting their heads uh, to see what's there. And they find that Moses and Elijah are gone, and only Jesus remains. Verse 9 goes on. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Incidentally, this is the first time anyone obeys the command to not say anything about the Messiah. And uh, they asked him, "What do the scribe? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You know, they had expected a general resurrection at the end of the age, but they don't know what Jesus means by." him as an individual rising from the dead. So they asked, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus goes on to reply, and he said to them, Elijah does uh, come first to restore all things. And then jump to verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. John suffered just like Elijah suffered. Elijah suffered from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, John suffered from a king and queen as well, Herod and Herodias, who had John beheaded. And gentlemen, if my forerunner suffered, don't you think that I also will suffer? So back in verse 12, Jesus says, And how it is written of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. In other words, Jesus is is mercifully and graciously reminding these men that the cross precedes the crown. He would suffer and be treated with contempt before they would see him reign in glory. And friend, we receive the same encouragement, if you can think of it as encouragement. We're told again and again that the cross precedes the crown. Uh, for example, Jesus says in John 16, I've said these many things, I've said these things to you, that in me you ha may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And then Paul and Barnabas, they teach their disciples the, the very same idea. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith, uh, excuse me, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul later writes this, uh, to the Thessalonians. He doesn't want any of them to be moved by his afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And then finally, Peter writes something similar. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
So if you've experienced suffering, you're normal, according to God's word. It will come in varying degrees. Don't have to worry about it because Christ will be there to carry you through. And so Jesus here, this fourth ingredient is just a reminder that the cross comes before the crown. And this, friends, is how Jesus encouraged Peter, James, and John. This was what was included in his stupendous blast of encouragement. This is how he encourages them to keep on swimming, so to speak, to keep on following, to keep on fighting. And this is how he would encourage you, keep on swimming, keep on fighting. Because of these four ingredients, the glory of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, the approval of Jesus by the Father, and the sufferings of Jesus. The, the cross comes before the crown. Well, two months after her failed attempt at uh, swimming from Catalina Island to the coast of California, uh, Florence Chadwick try, tried again uh, the same channel and did successfully swim the distance. Not only swim the distance, she set a speed record uh, for that swim, all because she could see the land that day. She could see the shore. And we're encouraged, keep swimming, keep running the race, keep fighting by keeping this in mind, keeping the goal in sight, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. We ask Christ Jesus <clears throat> I um, pray that uh, you would use these moments to bring to mind all the things that we have become satisfied with other than you. And I pray that by your good spirit, uh, you would remind us that you are the end in sight. You are the shoreline. And that one day we will stand before you and see your glory. But in the meantime, we see your greatness, that you supersede and exceed everything that came before you, that the Father delights in you, and that we can too, even through the sufferings of this life. And so, Christ Jesus, I pray that you would make this real to us, that like Peter and James and John, we too could experience this stupendous blast of encouragement by this vision on Mount Hermon. Father, please do this work in us. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.